Heather and Ferg from New Old Friends, and this is the 16th chapter of Crimes Against Christmas. And if you're this far into Crimes Against Christmas, you <laughs> must be enjoying it. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on social media. In the last chapter, Archridge, Michelle and Turtle found four decorations missing with four deaths upon the island. Coincidence? Let's find out. Chapter 16. Decorations of Death This latest macabre twist was almost too much to bear. Was somebody marking out their murders with the removal of these festive trinkets? I dispatched Michelle and Turtle to their room immediately, and they were more than happy to obey my instruction. They hurried from the hall, clinging on to one another for support, but I stayed behind. I wanted a moment to inspect the mantelpiece without interruption. There wasn't much to glean from what was there. It was a perfectly ordinary scene, a grand hearth flanked by two impressive stone pillars with scroll ends supporting a beautiful piece of oak heartwood. The shelf itself was dressed in evergreen foliage, presumably collected from the grounds, and dotted with gold candlesticks and some apparently fateful ornaments. The actual ornaments were quite unassuming. Indeed, not knowing what I'd just discovered, the most noteworthy thing about them would have been their absence of ostentation and value, considering they were on display at the heart of such a showy home. I inspected each of the remaining octet in turn. They were a semi-identical collection of conical ceramic mounds, cheaply glazed in a deep green, standing between six and ten inches in height. There was no discernible potter's mark or company imprint, not that I blame the creator, I wouldn't have wanted my name attached to any such artless art either. I suppose a more forgiving eye could construe them as an abstract interpretation of a Christmas fir tree, but they had a level of artistry one might expect to find on the patronising good effort table at a local fete, far from the rosettes. Given the rest of the decor at the house, these felt like a minor lapse in an otherwise impeccable collection. Of course... The reduction of their number reflecting the culling of the guest list made them abhorrent in a far more visceral way than mere bad taste. I placed the final piece carefully back into its place nestled in the foliage, and as I did so something caught my eye in the grate of the fire below. It was a curved line of pure white in amongst the black of the charcoal. I delicately pinched it between my fingers and lifted out a triangle of broken chinaware. I rubbed it with my thumb, and underneath the charring was the same deep green glaze. This was part of the four missing decorations. I took up the poker from the companion set and poked around in the ashes, revealing other fragments, enough to account for all four absent pieces, I would say. Either there was an almighty coincidence involving an accident and the same number of smashed decorations as we had deaths, or someone was throwing an ornament into the fire with each kill. I briefly considered setting up camp in the Great Hall to see who, if anyone, was smashing the little trees. But the vastness of the room and the way the shadows pooled in the corners and the edges providing ample opportunity for sneak attacks made me concerned my presence there could be utterly terrifying for any poor soul who happened upon me. I quickly talked myself out of that for, for the sake of others. Far too frightening. For them. Selfless of me to put their feelings first, really, when you think of it, considering the circumstances. Once safely in my room, I emptied my pockets of the bread and cheese requisitioned from the kitchen, sniffing and inspecting each item for any signs of tampering. Eventually, my hunger overcame my trepidation and I tucked in, pairing the meal with a good measure of the remaining McMickle scotch. I finished eating, and with my stomach now full, I lay in bed and tried to get some rest. 
As I drifted off to sleep that Christmas Eve, my dreams were worse even than the visitations of Ebenezer Scrooge, filled as they were with bodies piling up like snow at the side of the road, and my hopes of catching the bauble thief melting like yesterday's snowman. I was plagued by visions of Crimine walking in the air, then tumbling his way to an eternal silent night. I followed the line of his descent towards a river, where I saw Drummer floating face down in water as dark as oil alongside Sharon's rust-coloured punt, at one end of which sat Betty puffing grimly on a pipe. The picture rushed forward until the bowl of the cook's pipe was all I could see. It became the caldera of a great volcano around the edge of which Princess Fuctifino danced and danced, exhorting me to join her and make up a pair for the pattern. I awoke, drenched in sweat, for the second morning running and chastised myself for eating cheese before bed. I made a promise I'd not repeat the mistake that evening, but couldn't stop my internal monologue from adding, if I make it to the evening. I was rattled and, even though it offered me safety and solitude, the terrors of the night made my room a bit, well, a bit rummy oppressive, to be honest. Before leaving, I just needed to freshen up a little. I looked in the mirror and the face I saw looking back was not the suave, debonair man I wished to see. Different strands of my hair had apparently formed factions overnight and were fighting to put as much distance between each other as possible. Meanwhile, my stubble had gone from suggesting a rugged, manly disposition to something far less attractive. My beard stubbornly refuses to grow at a uniform rate, resulting in some clumps of dense thatch whilst leaving other areas of my cheeks and jaw still bare as a choir boy's. My wild mane and patchy facial fuzz, when taken in conjunction with my eyes, which had decided to flee the scene by burrowing deeply back into my skull, gave the overall impression that I was the type of chap whose tailor would be wise to leave the sleeves extra long and perhaps fitted with buckles to secure them behind his client's back. I muttered, Mens sana e corpore sana and all that, and gave the body a good old clean, razored the whiskers and tamed the mane with a comb in the hope that the mind would follow. I headed directly toward the kitchen in search of some coffee, feeling it only fair to give the brain box a bit of pharmaceutical support. I'd intended to take the only route I knew to the kitchen, i.e. through the great hall, but to my shame I must report I didn't quite have the stomach to see the mantelpiece that morning, so thought I'd see if I could locate this simpler passage which Turtle had mentioned. It turned out to be relatively easy to find once you're looking for it. Just a little down from the entrance to the great hall was a door which had been masked to look like the surrounding wall, dado rail and all. It was hardly invisible, as there was a handle proudly protruding and one could see the outline clear enough, but at a glance the effect worked. Beyond this secret-ish doorway was a narrow corridor roughly the length of the great hall, which opened out onto the kitchen. You're now possessed of slightly more knowledge than I was, dear listener, because as I approached this second doorway I had not a clue what was behind it. However, as I drew near, I could hear voices from the other side. I hesitated, unsure whether I really wanted to be in the company of anyone on this island, being as one of them was a depraved killer. At first, I couldn't quite make out who was talking, but as I edged closer to the door, I could clearly hear the conversation taking place. The identity of the parties involved became obvious with the first audible words, as did the pleasing presence of coffee. Pour me two coffees and set them on the tray, would you, butler? It was Lord Duplanus, and his tone, such that I could discern through the door, told of a far more restful night than I'd endured. He sounded a world away from the disturbed and disturbing presence who'd been pouring at Turtle's face asking odd questions last night. I could hear his syncopated steps shuffling round the kitchen, picking up crockery and setting it down on the tray he mentioned, I assumed. Of course, sir. 
And, sir, as we're alone, I wondered if... Damned obliging of Butler to frame his sentence that way, letting me know this little radio play was a duologue. Diplanus jumped in before the servant could elaborate on quite what he was wondering, though. What is it? Well, the deaths, sir. Butler's tone was much less assured than his master's, his words trailing off at the end. In my imagination, I saw his eyes turning towards that hideous cupboard which would now no doubt contain the remains of Betty, Drummer, Crimine, and Fuck Divino. His lordship evidently either wasn't privy to the fact he was stood so close to a temporary morgue, or was simply powering through with the terse matter-of-fact tone employers employ everywhere. Diplanus was not alien to the concept of working for someone else, though. Yes, yes, frightful business. But the boat will be here tomorrow, and we can raise the authorities then. In the meantime, we mustn't let standards slip, Butler, particularly on Christmas Day. The Lord of the Manor wants his coffee, and more to the point, so does his lady. So chop-chop if you know what's best for me. I mean you. Of course, sir. Uh, I just wanted to ask about Crimine, sir. The sounds of movement in the kitchen stopped. At the second they did so, I became aware of a tickly sensation inside my nose. No, no, surely not. This is the sort of thing that happens in a ludicrous farce. I wasn't about to sneeze, was I? I fought it off manfully, wanting to stay listening in splendid isolation. Oblivious to the epic battle for self-control being waged inside my nostrils outside the door, the conversation in the kitchen continued. Diplanus's mercurial voice had lost some of its lightness. Crimine, what about him? Well, he's dead, sir. I'm aware of that, butler. His entrails are fertilising my father-in-law's beloved rosebush as we speak. What's your point? Whatever foreign agent was held captive in my nasal cavity was launching a renewed petition for release, and my reflexes were eager to comply. I wouldn't be able to hold on much longer, but was desperate to get as much knowledge as I could before revealing myself. I tensed every facial muscle I had, puckering all my features into a tight little knot. Butler, being unaware of my predicament, was taking a torturously circuitous route to whatever his point may be. Well, uh, how does that affect the, um, uh, the unmentionable, sir? Diplanus exploded. How dare you even mention the unmentionable? What if somebody heard? At this point, I could contain myself no longer and let out an almighty sneeze. <laughs> At least I had the presence of mind to open the door wide as I did so and step in with what I hoped looked like the blithe stroll of someone who hadn't been crouched eavesdropping for the last couple of minutes. Excuse me. I had a little tickle in my nose there. Good morning, your lordship, butler. Merry Christmas and all that. I was unsure as to whether my little performance had won the audience over. Both were staring at me with wide eyes and mouths caught halfway between pursed irritation and gaping wonder, lending their heads the aspect of bowling balls with three perfect circles for fingers. I doubled down on my affable oaf routine. No. No, I suppose Mary's the wrong word. Just best wishes of the season, I suppose. I say, awfully sorry for barging in and whatnot. I'm not interrupting, am I? One doesn't think to knock on a service door. I made to exit back through the door. Shall I leave you chaps to it? Happily, that seemed to do the trick for Diplanus, and his features unfroze into an ingratiating smile. He waved away my apology and beckoned me into the room. No, 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 do come in, Mr Archridge. You're not interrupting anything that doesn't benefit very much from the interjection. I know I shouldn't discuss such matters outside of the household, but these are unusual times, and would you believe this callous ingrate was actually lobbying me for a raise? I know it's Christmas, but with the situation we find ourselves in, all he's concerned about is that he's doing more work, and so he should get more money. Would you credit it? I was impressed with the speed he'd concocted this story, and the ease with which he delivered it. 
Not wanting to reveal how much I heard, I entered the room more fully and played along. Oh, really, butler, that's a bit low. The poor blighter's face was an absolute picture. I rather enjoyed seeing him squirm a little, mouth opening and closing like a fish. Well, that isn't... I wasn't... I... You weren't? Are you sure? It certainly sounded to me like that's what you were saying. No, your lordship. No, I, I wouldn't dream of it. Butler had a bewildered and slightly shamed look upon his face, like he was trying to remember if he was guilty of that which he was being accused. Duplanus went to him and put an arm around his shoulders in a kindly fashion. Well, I do apologise in that case. My mistake. But whatever we were talking about can wait now. Guests are present. I'm sure. Can't it? I saw the knuckles of the planet's hand go white as he gripped the butler's shoulder. Of course, sir. There's a good man. Now, we're running low on milk. Can you fetch us some? Well, sir, Missy's already gone down to the paddock to get some from Daisy, sir. Daisy? Who's Daisy? I interrupted, suddenly alert to the possibility that there might be some unaccounted-for member of staff on the island. Where was she yesterday? Go and chase the girl up, butler. No dawdling. Duplanus said whilst steering Butler toward the far door and whispering something in his ear as he did so. Then he turned back to me with a little chuckle and a smile I didn't like playing on his lips. <laughs> Calm down, Archridge. Daisy is our dairy cow. Living cut off from the mainland like this means we have to be a bit self-sufficient. We've got chickens too if you need to check their alibis. <laughs> Maybe you should have your coffee black, but Irish it up a little. The energy between us was charged. I knew he'd just lied to me, but I'd no idea just what the butler knew about Crimine and what was so unmentionable. He pulled down a bottle of scotch from one of the shelves, but it was half empty and could easily have been tampered with like Fuctofino's vodka. I raised a hand to decline the offer, and as I did so, the door I'd just come through opened abruptly, shocking me. My hand continued its upward journey straight above my head, lifting my feet off the ground and drawing from someone's lips a little yelp of surprise. The intruder was Lady Duplanus. She was wrapped in a silk dressing gown of the Eastern style, her hair tousled as though fresh from bed, but a flawlessly made-up face belied the effort she'd taken to create the look. She'd pushed the door open with such force it banged against the wall, providing an oral cue for us to turn, after that small yelp of surprise from who knows where, and admire the pose she'd struck in the opening. Head tilted back against the frame, with one hand delicately resting, palm up on her brow, the other gripping the door jam by her hip. When she spoke, her voice contained promises of late nights, cigarettes and stories to make the boys at the club blush. A practice huskiness staying just the sexy side of a rasp. Mm, good morning. Why, there's a strapping man looking hungry and ready for his breakfast. Lord Duplanus was delighted to see his wife. He cuddled up like a lobster in a pot tucking his chin away coyly while his hands made gleeful little paddles at his midriff. Mm, good morning, my little goosey-woo. You look lovely too, as always. Goosey-woo snapped both her arms to her sides with military precision and fired off a put-down like a marksman. Not you, you pathetic specimen. I was talking to Mr. Artridge. Her head whipped to face me, and with an outrageous wink she resumed her parade. So deliberate and defined were her movements that I found myself imagining a tiny drill sergeant sat upon her shoulder, calling out commands. Eyes to target! Present breasts! Slinky arms! Sashay to the left! Stand easy! 
Deplanus physically shrunk from her display, contorting his shoulders and arms inward towards his body as if trying to make himself small enough to take refuge behind the steaming copper coffee pot on his tray. I, meanwhile, found myself unable to do anything except gorp at her ladyship as she oscillated her way towards me, apparently propelling herself forward using her hips as a shark would its tail. She swam through the space and came to rest with a finger on my chest, continuing to sway slightly. You're very rugged and handsome, aren't you? You smell delicious, too. I'd applied some cologne after shaving that morning and was pleased, despite the situation, to know it was pleasant. The aroma coming from the woman fiddling with my shirt front was more perno than perfume, though. Lady Deplanus had obviously started drinking early this morning, or perhaps she hadn't stopped. That's, that's very kind, thank you, your ladyship, I said, trying to back away but finding myself pressed against the central island. I love it when men call me ladyship. She giggled and ran her hands along the line of my shirt's buttons. I always imagine someone smashing a bottle of champagne across my backside and a squad of sailors climbing aboard, running up and down my rigging. Deplanus had been trying to distract himself from the flagrant lack of respect his wife was showing him by fussing with the coffee pot, but he could not contain his discomfort any longer. He banged the pot down, sending a plume of steaming coffee into the air and onto his hand. It must have scalded him, but he was so intent on scalding his wife that he paid it no heed. Darling! Just a little joke, dear. Lady Deplanus laughed it off, <laughs> turning her head back to her husband but stumbling as she did so. I grabbed her by the least erotic body part I could, the elbow. Now, I'm sure there are lots of elbow enthusiasts out there who would vehemently disagree with my assessment of the erotic potential of that particular hinge. Well, I'm sorry, but they just don't do it for me. At best, they look like what they are. Gnarly gristle with a thin layer of fat for a covering, and at worst, they resemble half a pig's hoof wrapped in a scrotum. The world being what it is, even that description is sure to have set some grubby soul into raptures of orgiastic delight. Anyway, while they go away and wash themselves, I had just taken hold of Lady Planus by the elbow to steady her. Are you okay? You, you seem a little unsteady. I've not found my sea legs yet. She replied with another wink so theatrical I believe it may have been eligible for an equity card. Lord Deplanus, not possessed of my renowned skills for deduction, was only at this point cottoning on to his wife's inebriation. Oh, I see. You've been drinking, darling. He waggled his podgy finger in a circular motion as though he'd just laid out a design for a perpetual motion machine, rather than stating the bleeding obvious. Well, of course I bloody have. In case you haven't noticed, darling, there's a ruddy lunatic tearing around the island, killing everyone. And unless you have a better idea, which would be a first, I wish to be good and sloshed when he comes for me. Despite the expansive waving of her arms and the withering tone, I could see through Lady Deplanus's bluster to the fear and insecurity of Lucy Richtenshan underneath. Deplanus could see it too. He stepped towards his wife and placed his arms around her, tenderly kissing the top of her head. She stiffened but allowed herself to be held for a moment. It was actually a rather touching little scene. I dare say if it hadn't been for the overtly licentious flirting of a moment before, I might have been moved. As it was, though, I simply felt awkward at this startling shift in dynamic. Oh, Goosey, don't worry, my sweet. I'll be there to protect you. He looked upon her with eyes full of love, and I fleetingly fancied there might be tears and promises to follow shortly, which would have been dashed embarrassing for me, stood there like a gooseberry. I needn't have worried, though. After a brief respite in the arms of her spouse, the soused Lucy Goosey Woo de Planus was back to fighting form and reached an arm out from her husband's embrace to grab the bottle of scotch he'd so recently offered me and held it aloft as she wriggled out of his hug.
I'll take my chances with the bottle if it's all the same to you, darling. Now here's breakfast. Duplanus looked so hurt by his wife's coldness I felt compelled to help the poor sod out and jumped in to move the conversation along and away from his shame. Ah, yes, well, Butler's just gone to chase up young Missy the maid. I, I believe she's with Daisy collecting the morning's milk. Sure they won't be long now. My noble intent to spare the blushes of my host was ill-conceived. Rather than chivying the chat along to more neutral grounds, by speaking I'd once again placed myself at the centre of the lady's shark-like attention. She brushed back past Lord Duplanus without so much as looking at him and resumed her previous position with the fingers of one hand tucked just inside my shirt buttons. Her free hand displayed great dexterity in spinning off the cap of the bottle and, without taking her eyes from mine, raised it to her mouth and gulped down a decent measure, smacking her lips appreciatively as she lowered the neck to speak. Well, look, could you be an absolute Christmas angel and bring me up a little breakfast in bed? We could play a little game and pretend I'm staying at a hotel ordering room service. You'd like to service me in my room, wouldn't you, Mr. Artridge? Sweetness, really, pleaded Duplanus. I'm just being friendly to our guests, darling. There's nothing wrong with that, is there? I'll concede. I had been slightly at a loss as to how to respond, but this little exchange gave me just enough time to compose myself and keep up my end, as it were. I concocted what I thought to be an innocuous enough reply, one that would bring the matter to a swift, satisfactory close, but include Lord Duplanus as a bulwark against any further funny business. I'm sure between myself and his lordship we can get something up to you. The second it had left my lips, I realised I'd underestimated the pornographic imagination of the woman pouring at my chest. Her eyes widened with mischievous delight, and her blood-red lips smiled broadly before she playfully hit my chest, pouted and turned her head away coquettishly. Between you and his lordship, eh? Oh, Mr. Artridge, you are naughty and adventurous. No, that's not... I wasn't... No! I was gabbling like a child, wrongly accused of some heinous breach of school protocol, but unable to provide an alibi without dropping his friends in the muck. In the midst of this agony of impropriety, I think I saw Lord the Planner smile himself, perhaps relieved to see his wife torture some other poor sod, or maybe he just appreciated her wordplay. Either way, he stepped in to end my torment, smoothly extricating my shirt from his wife's grip and ushering her to the door she'd just come through. His voice now changed register too, and slipped into a commanding tenor as he opened the door and gestured for her to exit. I think it's best you go back to bed now, darling. You're quite right, of course. She stepped through and began to close the door behind her, just turning back to deliver an exit line and a final bow for her West End-worthy wink. I was just looking for company. Duplanus and I shared a moment of uncomfortable silence, then a moment of uncomfortable noise as we both tried to fill the void simultaneously. She I was should probably... You go ahead, Your Lordship. Sorry for interrupting. Well, not at all. I, I was just going to apologise for... well, for, um... I'd no wish to wait for him to find the words to describe the candid invitation to infidelity his wife had so clearly just offered, and hastily waved him off. No need, no need, sir. I'll not hear a whit of it. Stressful time. Very, very stressful time. Christmas? His face was so utterly devoid of artifice, the embarrassment of his predicament must have occasioned a momentary lapse in memory. Well, yes, that, that too, I suppose, but um, I meant the deaths primarily. Oh, right, yes, of course. He smacked a pudgy palm to his forehead. Still, though, I must apologise. She's not herself. Please excuse me, I'll, I'll just go and check on her. With that, he scooped up his tray of breakfast things and backed out through the door. A fleeting familiarity flitted through my mind, but I put it down to fatigue. Christmas Day was only just beginning, but my mind was already exhausted. Thank you.
She's a saucy one, that Lucy. See you tomorrow to find out who's next. <gasps> I mean, what's next? 